Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Sean Bowen, president and CEO of Olima Oncology. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sean. Thank you, Rahul. It's my pleasure. Great. So Sean, to kick us off, if you could just walk us through the arc of your career, what you did prior to Olima and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks. I'm an oncologist by training. I have an MD and a PhD in biochemistry. Shockingly enough, the PhD is in steroid hormone receptor signaling. So as we get to the Olima story, I feel like my career trajectory has not gone linearly as many do. I've kind of gone in a big circle. I keep coming back to this same problem and pounding away at it and hopefully make some real progress with this iteration. I then did my residency training in San Francisco at UCSF, where I did my MD and my PhD, and then went to Stanford, where I did an oncology fellowship and postdoc, and also was faculty for a brief time and was consulting to industry and just became fascinated by the impact that could be made in research and drug development in an industry setting and went to Genentech and was there actually for about 13 years and did all sorts of roles within oncology, outside of oncology, early development, late development. And for the last five years, I was the head of early development for GRED, Genentech Research and Early Development. And then after that, I left and went to AstraZeneca where I was the head of global development and the chief medical officer during a very interesting time for AstraZeneca in terms of relying on development successes, which did materialize to turn the company around. And that was quite successful and very exciting. And then left AstraZeneca and helped some friends with some company founding, took some board positions, and then learned about Olima. And that was an opportunity to go back to something that I had been passionate about, not only cancer, but very specifically targeting the estrogen receptor and the treatment of ER ER-positive breast cancer. And so joined as CEO. And that was a little more than two years ago. Shortly after I joined, we accelerated the IPO. And about one year ago, on November 19th, 2020, took Olima public. Great. Thanks, Sean. I'm curious, given your experience in, say, big biotech and big pharma, What were some experiences from big pharma that didn't translate well into a high growth biotech environment that surprised you? Yeah, I'm not sure that it surprised me. I think I could see it. What probably surprised me was the degree of difference as opposed to was this. So obviously the thing that can be very fun about the big pharma environment is the amount of resource you have. And, you know, mostly that gets measured in dollars, how much money is being spent on these programs. I think what's often undervalued, and I know that you have thought about this a lot and have strong opinions, is is the access to talent that you have, the ability to flex that and deploy that. You know, in biotech, we are fighting over a very constrained talent pool all the time. And I, I knew that coming in. I think we all know that. When you see how brutal that fight is and how constrained that talent pool actually is real life. It's quite sobering, I have to say. So I think that was, to me, probably the primary thing. There is a dollars question too. I mean, I think the halcyon days of sort of 2019, 2020, perhaps early 2021, 
where money from all kinds of sources was going into biotech. You were seeing so many things funded, many of which you looked at and said, wow, that actually scientifically doesn't really seem ready for prime time yet. You had that environment and we were able to take advantage of it to raise quite a lot of capital, mainly in 2020 for Olima. But then, you know, you see it flip and sort of equally extremely in the opposite direction right now. And you can see that some really promising ideas aren't able to secure further funding. So these companies are downsizing, they're reverse merging, you know, closing. And some of that is, you know, the normal culling of ideas that just didn't pan out. But I think we're losing some really valuable innovation in that. And so that is another dynamic that I think is very challenging and probably not great for the industry as a whole, but also for translating science into meaningful benefit for treatment of healthcare problems. And I'm curious, you know, given your position as CEO, what are some of the downstream impacts you've seen as it relates to poor access to talent from your perspective? I think that you run into a situation where, you know, I, I talked a bit about financial resources, but you run into a situation where we have a good balance sheet and there are things that we could be doing in our clinical program that, to be frank, we just don't have the capacity to do them. And the reason we don't have the capacity is because you got great people, but we have trouble getting more great people. And so I think that is perhaps the biggest impact that I've seen. Yeah. And in particularly in this current environment where optionality is really important, but you also need multiple shots on goal, it is this paradoxical position that we're in as a sector right now. Yeah, that's right. It translates into both things you said. Optionality, I would say, also maximizing the value of a given asset, yeah. right? And then the other, your shots on goal is diversification of risk. And both of those things get compromised when, you know, the fundamental required ingredient that they're built upon is talent and people who can really execute. Obviously, we are an industry that requires a great deal of training and expertise. You know, that's just the ticket to entry. And so that contributes as well. Yeah. Great point, Sean. Let's talk about Olima now and the exciting work that you all are pursuing there. Sure. Yeah. So Olima Oncology is focused on cancers that occur primarily in women. Our lead program is a molecule called OP1250. It's in phase two development in estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative breast cancer. It will have its initial phase three program and second, third line ER positive HER2 negative breast cancer start mid-year Next year, we have a FDA fast track designation for the molecule in that indication and a broad program ongoing, combining with CDK4-6 inhibitors, palbociclib and ribociclib, PI3 kinase alpha inhibitors, alpalisib, as well as an interesting single agent program. And then we also have ongoing research and pipeline generating effort, again, focused on women's cancers. We haven't disclosed the targets there, but I mean, when we do, it will be very coherent. When you look at what we're doing with OB1250 and and how these things fit together, I should say our focus is on cancers that occur primarily in women, as you appreciate sometimes the pathways that are dysregulated, Mm. that cancer growth aren't just occurring in cancers that occur in in women, but are, are shared with other types of cancers. And we're fine with that as well, if that's where the biology leads us. And Sean, for our understanding, if you could paint the picture of the breast cancer landscape right now opportunities within that landscape and challenges that you see as well. Yeah, sure. So I think to set the context, breast cancer is the second most common cancer diagnosis in the world. 
The most common is actually some common skin cancers that are, are often not systemic. They can often be treated with local treatment by dermatologists. So, so from the standpoint of more life-threatening cancers, it, it's probably the most common. Of that cancer burden, hundreds of thousands of women in the United States being diagnosed each year, about not quite three quarters of that is estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. And then it gets divided. You also have HER2 positive. Mostly those are also ER positive. There are some ER negative. And then this very difficult to treat smaller subset called triple negative, which doesn't express estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, or HER2. And that's been challenging, although with some recent progress. And what happens obviously with breast cancer is that screening is common, at least in places that have the resource, if we think about it worldwide. And this is mostly mammography. So very often the cancer is diagnosed well localized and local treatment and supplement with tamoxifen is able to be given adjuvant treatment. But many of those cases that the cancer will relapse and or progress. And then you end up in an advanced or metastatic setting. And the vast majority of the women who end up in that setting will ultimately die from that cancer. And so the objective is really to prolong their life and with high quality of life as long as possible. Great. Thanks, Sean. I'm curious, as you see market conditions right now, specifically in breast cancer, where do you think opportunities lie across that sector? And what are particular technologies, obviously outside of Lima, that you're excited by? The objectives are different probably in those different subsets that I mentioned So if I do it kind of backwards from what I did before in triple negative, just getting something that worked has been the objective for quite some time. And we're seeing some progress there. We're seeing some progress with immunotherapies for cancer there. We're seeing some other targeted therapy progress there. You know, the HER2 space has been a fascinating space to watch because originally when I was first training, overexpression amplification of the HER2 oncogene was a terrible prognostic factor. And you know the first treatment that targeted that was Herceptin, Trastuzumab approved in 1997, and that essentially flipped that. And then what you saw in that field was just a flurry of progress within the couple decades following with things like uh, Pergetta, Pertuzumab, targeting in a different way, the antibody drug conjugates, Cadcilin now in HER2. So you can really see extraordinary progress there. ER positive HER2 negative has been a bit more challenging. The targeting of the estrogen receptor has been going on for a long time. It's probably the most validated uh, molecular target in cancer with tamoxifen approved in 1977. Coming a a bit later in the early 2000s was fulvestrin, which is a better molecule in that it is not a partial agonist. It doesn't turn on the receptor in some contexts and turn it off in others. It turns it off basically in all contexts. The problem is its pharmacology is very limiting. It's two large injections every 28 days. And by large, I mean a teaspoon each injection. And so that also limits the exposure to the drug and the engagement of the receptor. And really, we haven't seen an ER targeting agent. We've got a recent success about a year ago with a molecule called LSSRN, but we still think there's plenty of room for further improvement 
Other than that, there has been really good momentum. I think the advent of the CDK4-6 inhibitors has really helped primarily women with this condition. About 1% of patients are actually men. And so there has been progress. And then there's been progress in the more chemotherapy setting with Tradelv and HER2, the antibody drug conjugates. But one of the primary objectives of treatment in ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer is to put off chemotherapy as long as possible. And that's where we think there's plenty of room for improvement. Great. Thanks, Sean, for that background. I'm curious, since you went public in 2020, and even just your own path to being CEO for the first time, how have you been personally handling all the ups and downs of running a company and more specifically, you know, biotech company, given the inherent risk in everything that we do across biotech? And then the second part of that question is in terms of managing your team and the ups and downs of that as well. Would love to hear any insights you've had there. Yeah, sure. That's a a great one. You are absolutely right. You know, when I started in summer, I guess, of 2020 to sort of where we are now, it it is definitely a whiplash kind of change in, in environment. Part of that, I think, has to do with our industry, but part of it has to do with just general market dynamics right now, right? Inflation. I think some of this is is Mm post-pandemic to some extent. Some of it is world events, you know, energy costs, which the war in Ukraine has definitely an impact there. We're very fortunate in one respect in that we are in a good cash position. We have just did our Q3 results. We have just north of $222 million in the bank. We have runway comfortably into the second half of 2024. So some other CEOs are really having a much tougher time. And the reason for that is that equity markets are a terrible place to try to access capital right now for our industry, right? Obviously, you have to do it at a massive dilution if you can do it at all, right? I haven't had to deal with that. But the second question you asked Rahul is a really important one, which is maintaining focus. And for me, it has been just emphasizing, look, the science we have here is good. And as we generate more data on OP1250, we are seeing the key attributes that we have been trying to achieve complete antagonism of the estrogen receptor, strong degradation, long half-life, daily oral dosing, good tolerability profile. Now, as we'll present at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, good combinability with CDK4-6 inhibitors. These things we're trying to examine are CNS penetration. You have to keep the team focused on, look, the economy is doing what it wants to do. Unfortunately, breast cancer does not care. And so the opportunity to help people is there. The science is there. We just have to focus on what we are doing. And if we are able to achieve our goals, we'll help people and the economic part will find its way. For those who don't have the runway that we have, that's a lot tougher because you you sometimes have to do whatever you can to be able to access that opportunity. Yeah, very good and compelling point, Sean. Thanks for sharing that perspective. I'm curious, as, as you look ahead now for Alima over the next you know, year or so, how have the current market dynamics and conditions changed your own approach to how you guys operate? And if there's any advice you would provide younger CEOs that are also trying to figure this out right now? Yeah. I mean, for our market dynamics, as I said, we have been in the fortunate position of not having to access capital yeah. so far, but it has impacted us. 
So where we are, Rahul, as I mentioned, is we're going to start our first pivotal trial mid-year next year. And that's in second, third line, ER positive, HER2 negative breast cancer. Right now, it's conceived as a single agent, OP1250 versus comparator, active comparator. And that trial, we can start and execute ourselves with some, some modest access to further capital. But the real vision and the real opportunity here is to move into earlier lines of therapy, into the first line setting in combination with CDK4-6 inhibitors. It turns out that the biology has headed right in our direction. We did not know when we started with OB1250 that the most common resistance mutation that leads to progression for patients who have been treated with a CDK4-6 inhibitor plus an aromatase inhibitor or fulvestrant, the current standard of care, the most common resistance mutation is an activating mutation of the estrogen receptor. And we know OB1250 has activity against those mutations, so we can suppress them. So there's this fantastic opportunity, but to be blunt, we can't afford to do it without further access to capital. Now, in a more favorable market environment, you might go to the equity markets to try to access that capital. In this market environment, you really have to focus on some form of strategic partnership in order to access the capital you need. And so fortunately, we have enough money to generate the data to support seeking those partnerships. There aren't a whole lot of assets out there that are phase three ready for multi-billion dollar markets like we are. So we are hopeful that we will have a success with that approach, but we have to be blunt. Our optionality, our ability to take multiple approaches to accessing capital is now compromised by the market environment. Mm. And, and on the point of, of partnerships, particularly given your experience at Genentech and AstraZeneca now in the seat that you're in, how do you approach partnerships and how has that landscape evolved over the last couple of years? It's interesting. I have done, to your point, I have championed and, and managed a ton of them. And both from the standpoint of being you know, a big pharma or big biotech acquiring or partnering with a small biotech or two kind of big pharmas partnering together. When you're the small partner, you have a couple things you have to make sure you do. One is you have to preserve upside for your shareholders, right? You have to retain enough control. You have to retain enough value that you continue to have an ability to reward the people who are giving you money in order to further this program and build your company. Beyond that, what you want to do is have a partner that strengthens your program and actually increases your ability to realize the full value, but also hopefully to execute well, right? I mean, obviously there's the access to capital. We talked about that, but I think there is a lot more to it. And if you don't get this right, you can end up with a, a partnership that actually is less than the sum of its parts. As opposed to, I have been in partnerships where as it played out, it was very clear to me that the two partners together were more than the sum of its parts. I think the bigger dynamic role that you asked about is, you know, pharma is going to have to seek out external revenue opportunities. We all see that most of them have impending loss of exclusivity and and the loss of revenue that comes with that. That's the way our industry works. But in order to maintain their earnings and hopefully for them grow their earnings, 
they are going to have to seek external innovation because no company can do that on their own. And so it will be interesting to see how that environment plays out. I think many observers of the market have been surprised at how little has happened. Yeah, great point, Sean. Before we wrap up, if I could ask you to reflect for a minute on you know all that you've seen across your career, what's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self? <laughs> Boy, that's a great question. There's about 50 that flooded into my head, which is yeah. which is the challenge I'm having is actually, it's not finding one, it's narrowing. I, I think the most important thing we have in this industry is objectivity. It's important to be passionate about what you're doing. There's so much unknown. We don't understand these complex biologies and we try and get enough to say, well, we think we understand it well enough to test it and make an impact and go into people and see what we can do. I would say two things about that. One is don't lose the objectivity. When data comes back and says, wait a minute, either this isn't going to work or this isn't going to work this way, or there's something important that you didn't know about before, couldn't have known about before, but you've learned it now, don't fight it so much. Actually take that in and say, okay, now I've learned something. What can I do with this? How can I make the next thing that happens better or more likely to succeed? And later in my career, I realized you could actually plan for that. You could design your experiments, be they clinical trials or preclinical experiments to say, okay, if this does not succeed in the way I would like, what can I do in the design of this to make it informative so that if I fail, I fail in a fashion that teaches me how to do things better the next time? Well, Sean, on on that great advice, thanks so much for joining us today and wishing you and your colleagues continued success on the important work that you're pursuing at Alima Oncology. Well, thank you, Rahul. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, for your interest as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.